Hey, Megan, Dr. G here with SPKN, and today we are speaking with author Andrew Morenis. Andrew is best known for his book, Strong Inside, Perry Wallace and the Collision of Race and Sports in, in the South. His other books include Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany, and singled out the true story of Glenn Burke. In his new book, Inaugural Ballers, which, can, which chronicles the 1976 U.S. national women's basketball team's triumph in the Montreal Olympics, Andrew presents more than just a history or collection of biographies. He lays out a sociological study of the role of women in sports in the U.S. Andrew, welcome to SPKN. Thank you, Meg. Thank you, Dr. G. Excited to be with you today. That's great. I'm glad to have you on and, and thank you for sharing and, and all your work too that you've done. I appreciate that very much. Now, Andrew, I'm getting the sense that you're very interested in the stories of disenfranchised and often un and forgotten athletic heroes. Let's start from the beginning. How did you come to write Perry Wallace's story? You're, you're right about that uh, assumption too. Um, so I guess to go back a ways, you know, I was interested in sports as long as I can remember. And in writing about sports uh, pretty far back too, my parents say I learned how to read by reading the back of baseball cards when I was uh, four and five years old. Um, when I was 13, I started my own little sports magazine that lasted for all of one issue. And then um, when I was in high school, I, I played uh, baseball and I was sports editor of our high school newspaper. And um, one day at the high school, there was a poster on the wall advertising a scholarship to Vanderbilt University for high school sports writers. And it was full tuition scholarship. Um, I was going to play baseball at a small uh, D3 school, but instead I was lucky enough to win this uh, scholarship. And that's what brought me to Vanderbilt. And my sophomore year uh, was 20 years after Perry Wallace had graduated as the Jackie Robinson figure in the SEC, but it was the first time two decades later when he was actually invited back to campus to be honored. And I happened to be taking a black history class at the time. And um, we had an assignment to write a paper about a figure in civil rights movement. And I wanted to write about Perry. I was just learning, you know, his story. And I was concerned that my professor was going to say, we don't write about basketball players in college, you know? Um, but thankfully she said, if that's what you're interested, that's what you should do. And so I wrote a paper about Perry as a 19 year old, came back to it uh, 17 years later, it remained the most interesting thing that I felt like I had done in college was learning his story um, and not just what it was like to step on the basketball court, you know, in Oxford, Mississippi or Starkville, Mississippi, but the toll of pioneering and what it was like on his own campus, the, the loneliness and isolation he felt. And so I emailed Perry and said, um, I don't know if you remember me, but I'd like to write a biography about you. And he, he was uh, kind enough to say he did remember me. I mean, it had been 17 years ago, so I don't know if he did or not, but um, he said, go for it. And so the next day I got started, it took me eight years to write the book, uh, Strong Inside, but I loved every every day of, of those eight years. Do you, ever, do you ever look back now and realize like or compare like your Vanderbilt education and like you were arguably learning not critical race theory, but like race theory in, in a black history course and, and can contrast that with today's times? Um, absolutely. You know, um, it's distressing, especially living here in Tennessee, although you could make probably say the same thing in most states 
around the country, the um, efforts that are being made to restrict learning, you know, about important subjects, uh, especially that deal with uh, race or sexuality um, or even true history, you know, uh, and so it's all the more important, I think, to tell these stories. I feel really fortunate that I was able to take that class uh, in college. And it, at some level, you know, what you're talking about is being directed at elementary and high schools, mm -hmm. but even in college, there have been uh, bills in Tennessee, Florida, and other states to restrict what is taught. Um, and it's really outrageous. Uh, best education I got was that class and the chance to um, speak to Perry Wallace and to learn his story, um, le really learn about civil rights and racism and race, which are so important uh, issues in this country, especially if you're interested in sports. Uh, I mean, the sports has the potential to bring people together, unlike almost anything else uh, in our society right now. It doesn't always, though, bring people together. And it certainly didn't in Perry Wallace's time. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But those are the important lessons to learn, especially if you're thinking about this from a coaching standpoint or a team standpoint, the way that Perry was uh, uh, basically let down, you know, by the rest of, uh, of the people that should have had his back as teammates. Uh, and so that was a great uh, learning lesson for me. And of course, it would be for anybody. And to prevent people from learning those lessons is really um, is uh, dangerous for the future of the country. I guess, can you speak a little bit more about that too? And if, if you were, or have you talked to coaches or athletic administrators and departments about how, how this can provide lessons for their own coaching and, and maybe beyond just a superficial, nice story? Right. Yeah. Those have been my favorite moments of being invited into a locker room, you know, to speak to a team. I've spoken to several Vanderbilt teams over the years here. Also, uh, University of Wisconsin, Coach Guard invited me to tell this story to his team. I've been to the University of Arkansas. Uh, Belmont here in Nashville um, was at Central Missouri just a few weeks ago. So to illustrate this, um, there's a story that takes place Perry's sophomore year. His freshman year, University of Mississippi had canceled both of its games against Vanderbilt rather than play against the team that had a black player on the team. Yep. So it's not until his sophomore year he becomes the first um, black player ever to play a game at Ole Miss. And he's concerned, he told me, that he might get shot and killed just for stepping onto the basketball court. Uh, in the first half of the game, he takes an elbow intentionally to the face. Uh, he's bleeding. He's dizzy. The refs don't call a foul. They don't even whistle a stop to the game. So it's not until the ball rolls out of bounds that, you know, there's a break in the action and the student manager can help uh, take Perry across the court to the locker room. And I interviewed the manager, and he said that he remembers the crowd, you know, rising to its feet to cheer the fact that Perry's injured. And so at halftime, he's sitting on a training table with a bag of ice, you know, on his face. And there's a clock in the locker room that lets the team know when it's about time to start the second half. And as that clock ticks down, everybody associated with the team runs back on the court. All the players, the coaches, the, the manager, the trainers. And they leave Perry on that training table by himself. And he knows that he's going to have to get up, walk through that tunnel, out into the bright lights of the court where he's been harassed uh, during the first half. And he said that if anybody had put themselves in his shoes, you know, and had a bit of empathy that somebody would have waited back for him, you know, and yeah. walked back onto the court with him and showed the crowd that they had their teammates back. And yet uh, nobody did it. And so he said he realized at that time that his experiment as a pioneer was a total solitary experience. The other lesson is at the time, and, and Perry respected his coach, Roy Skinner, and uh, the fact that he treated him 
decently. He treated his parents with respect, which was not common for a white man treat, uh, you know, black parents that way at the time. So Perry never badmouthed his coach. But the coach's approach to dealing with having the first black player on the team and traveling through the deep south in the 1960s, he said the best way to, to handle Perry was to treat him like anybody else. And at one level, you could see, well, okay, well, that sounds fair. You know, so maybe that's that that graphic you see of the difference between like equality and equity. I don't know if you've seen that, you know, the kids looking over the fence, but he was going to treat Perry, exactly, treat Perry like anyone else, when of course, Perry was not being treated like anyone else by anyone around him. And so Perry would say he didn't need special treatment. He just needed sort of an awareness of what was happening. So, you know, you didn't see anyone uh, file a protest with the SEC when Ole Miss canceled its games and say, like, this isn't right. Are we going to allow this? Uh, you didn't see anyone um, stop the game at Ole Miss when these outrageous displays are happening. Perry was never called into the coach's office to say, like, this is how we're going to get through this together. You never sat the team down and said, look, if Perry is harassed in this game at Auburn or Georgia, you know, we were going to show that we all have his back. Like those types of discussions never happened. And so I feel like that was an inadequate um, response, even though some may have felt like it was fair response to treat him like, like anybody else. Yeah. There's, I don't know if you're aware too, like there's a, an education that's been around for years too. And it's a little bit in coaching now that's kind of growing and, and in uh, athletic administration is either uh, racially sensitive or racially aware pedagogy. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's a, there's a great article by Gloria Ladson Billings about, uh, uh, it's like, what is, uh, there's a few of them. Uh, I'm going to blank on the title and I always feel pressured to, to get it just right now. <laughs> right. Um, but it's a, it's a racially sensitive pedagogy uh, in, in bringing how racial awareness into the classroom, you know, helps everybody understand Absolutely. history and, and just, now, beyond empathy, like it's really remarkable time and time again to hear stories about how really white folks back then didn't have a sort of empathy to put their racially colored glasses on to realize like, hey, this is not right and I can do better in this situation. And it's not yeah. just fair fairness. Even if you're only thinking about it from how you make your team perform at its best, you know, to sort of understand where people are coming from and how they're all going to perceive each other and interact as teammates, or even from that purely selfish motivation of winning games, yeah. it makes sense uh, to be uh, more fluent in this. Um, you know, the other thing we've seen here lately, uh, talking politics again, uh, especially in college athletics, say Tommy Tuberville, you know, yeah. a senator now who made uh, like outrageously racist remarks a couple of weeks ago, thinking about uh, how many millions he made uh, because of the performance of his black players at Auburn or other, other places. And to see sort of the lack of understanding or even a lack of interest in trying to understand uh, from a coach whose livelihood is dependent uh, on black athletes to such a degree was really shocking. Yeah, it, it should be shocking, but I, I mean, in another regard, it's not because it's yeah. so normal. It's so normalized. And, you know, time and time again, many, especially college basketball coaches and football coaches have shown that they have no interest in the economic exploitation of mostly young black men. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. And, you know, I wrote, also wrote a book you mentioned at the outset, Meg, on Glenn Burke, who was considered the first openly gay Major League Baseball player. And um, what was interesting there was uh, his teammates, who gradually sort of found out the secret when Glenn was still closeted, um, loved him and supported him and welcomed his presence in the locker room to the point that 
he was their favorite guy. Like this is the Dodgers, 1977, which was a very veteran heavy team. Steve Garvey, you know, Dusty Baker, Reggie Smith, Davey Lopes, Ron Say, like these names that were so pivotal in the 1970s. And they considered Glenn the most popular player in the clubhouse. And they knew he was gay and they didn't care because they knew that he was, you know, a great teammate and he worked hard and was funny. It was management of the team. It was another generation mm-hmm. uh, that felt that it would be a public relations uh, problem if it got out that there was a gay player on the team. So again, you see sort of that split between the the labor or the players, the coaches and uh, and the coaches or, or the management of a team. And this idea that it would be a, a distraction, you know, if there was a gay player on the team it was anything but a distraction. Tommy Lasorda, the manager of the team, was inviting Don Rickles and Frank Sinatra and all these celebrities into the clubhouse before almost every game, sort of talk about a distraction, you know. So you see quite a bit of um, sort of hypocrisy, any excuse uh, um, to, uh, you know, deter an out player from being on the team, any excuse um, to not learn about the history of people that are different on your team. And it made the Dodgers... um, they ran him off the team, right? And he's Glenn is run out of baseball by the Oakland A's uh, just a couple years later uh, because of this homophobia. And so we were all robbed. Glenn was robbed of his career, but everybody else was robbed of his talents, you know, and what we, we don't know what he could have become in the major leagues had he had a more uh, inclusive environment to play in. What needs to happen to make more of a change, you think? I think the, what we've seen when there, the things have gone well is that uh, there's an example set at the highest level, you know, of leaders saying this is important to our culture, you know, or to our team or to our league. And there's certain things that are worth fighting for and speaking out about uh, against some of the louder voices of hate that seem to be the loudest right now. You know, um, I think fans have a role in this also to show like, for example, the Dodgers were concerned that there would be essentially like a, a fan revolt if they found if fans found out that there was a gay player on the team. I mean, I don't think that that certainly that wouldn't be the case now. You know, I, I think that the the idea is that this is going to not go well. It's going to reflect poorly on the team or it's going to harm the team's performance on the field. Those have all been refuted. So like you say, it's frustrating that we haven't gotten Beyond that, I do think there's a legitimate concern uh, to some degree. You know, the individual at the heart of whatever story this is going to be, um, and talking to Billy Bean myself about this, you know, the fact that your major league career on average is what, three or four years? Um, Hard enough trying to last hitting major league pitching um, without any extra um burdens on your shoulders you know and so do you choose to be that person to represent an entire community do you want the media asking you uh, all these questions is it worth it uh just in your interaction with your own teammates you don't know how that's going to go uh, will you be able to play at the highest level um, if you come out while you're an active player how is that going to affect endorsements even you know I I don't think it would be a a problem you probably become incredibly uh, successful with certain endorsements but that is a legitimate concern that every it's not for us to say well you you should do this you know everyone has to make that uh, their own decision one thing I would say my most recent book you mentioned was about the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team played at the 76 Olympics in Montreal and those players came along during the period between when Title IX was signed and when it was actually implemented 
you know, and, and this being the 50th anniversary of Title IX this year, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, how far we've come. I think the other half of that story, though, is how much progress there is still to be made. Um, and so I think to the degree that there has been change, it was a sort of a combination of legislation that forced change, you know, um, lawsuits when change wasn't occurring that was supposed to, uh, according to the law, uh, courageous individuals that um, decided as young women that they were going to play sports, even if they were being told by everyone around them that that's not something that girls do, you know, you're not supposed to be competitive, you're not supposed to sweat or build muscles, you know, the, these women athletes, 60s and in the early 70s, they had no promise of a college scholarship or uh, of playing professional basketball or even playing in the Olympics until, you know, it was announced just a couple of years before the 76 Olympics that that would be an opportunity. And so, um, you know, in that regard, they sort of were making these sacrifices without any promise that it was going to lead to something. I would say Perry Wallace did the same thing, uh, sacrificed really for all of us as a society, putting himself through this tremendously painful and uh, hateful ordeal as a pioneer in the South, thinking beyond himself. And, and that's, so I think that's the other lesson. And that's what some of these um, Olympians told me is they understood that they inherited progress from people that came before them. Then they were passing the baton on to another generation. So I do think it, it involves having that, you know, really wide lens of understanding the place in history that you hold and how um, you're going to do things for, for people that, that will benefit other people and the whole other generation might not benefit you, but this is still important for society at, at large. I think that's so true. You know, the history, to tell history shows how far you can, you, we've come and shows how much further we have to go. So right. I think it's, that's so important. The other thing I love that you're doing is that you are, um, you've you've written um, at least I know one of your books for a younger reader, which mm -hmm. I, I love that. I mean, I think the next generation is really how we're gonna how we're gonna make uh, more uh, of. I hundred percent agree. I mean, <laughs> every time I feel depressed about the state of the world, if I go to a school, I start to feel better, you know. And um, so with Strong Inside, I initially wrote it for adults, and then I adapted it for middle school students. Um, all of my next books are kind of crossover books between young adult and adult. So anyone from middle school to high school to you guys, you know, these books are are for. And what I've tried to do is to use sports as a hook to talk about these other issues of racism, homophobia, sexism, you know, anti-Semitism. Um, but also to try to reach those kids that love to play sports, but maybe haven't discovered that they might love to read books also and that it's not intimidating, hopefully, to see a book with a basketball player or a baseball player on the cover and pick it up and give it a shot. You know, and I try to write these books with fast paced chapters, with good cliffhangers at the end of every chapter, with a lot of photography and make it as pain free process of reading as possible, but still do the real research. You know, I, I there's no shortcuts in these books just because they're meant for younger people. You know, I, I still feel that the research is the most important part of it and interviewing people and going to archives and libraries. And uh, I feel that's more important even than the, the writing is the, the investment in the research. Yeah. Now you've done, I mean, countless, I uh, imagine too, countless interviews and discussions and panels. You know, what are, what are some of the questions that you haven't been asked? You know, or like the best questions or the best responses that are worth sharing again? My favorite questions always come from the kids. Uh, 
and so I'll do a lot of presentations in schools and the last 15 or 20 minutes is the students asking questions. Um, when Perry was still living, one time I called him and like, Perry, I gotta know, what's your favorite color? And what's your favorite thing to eat? Because everywhere I go, the kids ask me those questions. So yeah. uh, green and grilled salmon, you know, like I had that ready to go <laughs> after that. Um, very important but, details. Yes, very important. And so whenever I'm somewhere and like, you know, how everyone's always afraid to ask the first question, like I'll say, guys, like there's no dumb question. People used to ask me what was Perry's favorite color? Like you can ask me anything. Um, but I was at a middle school in um, DeSoto, Kansas, uh, speaking about Games of Deception, which is the book about the first men's Olympic basketball team. And uh, an eighth grade girl raised her hand and said, well, that's great, but what's the story of the first women's Olympic basketball team? And so that question from her is what inspired me to write Inaugural Ballers. And I had a chance to go back to that school just a month ago and tell the kids, like, I'm counting on you to ask good questions because a girl that was a couple years older than you asked me a question that led to this book that I'm here to talk to you about uh, today. So that was probably the most memorable question that I've gotten. The other thing that really stood out is one year um, I had an event in New York City with a program for uh, Black and Latino uh, high school boys and was there to speak about Strong Inside. Two days later, I had a chance to speak about Strong Inside at a school in rural Wisconsin, like farmland uh, Wisconsin, where a kid was late because he was working with the cows, like on their dairy farm um, for the presentation. But it was really gratifying for me because both settings, like these kids really uh, wanted to know more about Perry, you know, and they were from such different circumstances. And so sometimes it's the similarity between the questions that really uh, strikes home with me more so than even than unique questions, because you realize that these, this story of Perry's life has lessons uh, for everybody. And, and that's pretty cool to me. Well, the real question is, did you send the first copy to that young lady that, that asked you? Yeah. Well, you know, when I went back to the school, they said, well, she's in high school now. She's not here today. Um, but I was able to do a Zoom with her uh, a couple of days later when I got back home and told her, you know, you're responsible for this book and to thank her and to send her a signed copy. Oh, that's awesome. Well, tell us a little bit more about the, the this book that's, um, has, has it already come out? Yeah, it came out uh, in mid-September, so just a couple months ago. Again, it's called Inaugural Ballers, uh, true story of the uh, first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team, which played at the 76 Olympics in Montreal. Uh, there were a few well-known players on this team, and y'all being interested in in coaching. Pat Summit uh, was the player on this team. She was the co-captain. Uh, she was already the head coach at, at Tennessee, but she was a player on the Olympic team. Also, uh, Ann Myers, Drysdale, you know, who was the first woman to get a, a basketball scholarship. Uh, so, that, you know, again, this is just during that that time where Title IX starting to be implemented. Also, Nancy Lieberman, you know, one of the all-time great players. And then Lucy Harris, uh, who was a, a Black player from who had integrated the team at Delta State and was the subject of an Oscar-winning documentary last year called The Queen of Basketball. Um, so there are some, you know, players that are pretty well known. I think there's nine players that have, are now in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame off this team. Their head coach was Billy Moore, who was a national championship coach at Cal State Fullerton and at UCLA. And the assistant coach was Sue Gunter, you know, who went on to become a great coach at uh, LSU. She was at Stephen F. Austin at the time. Uh, what was interesting about this team from a basketball sense now, you know, we, of course, we win the gold medal in women's basketball every Olympics and hardly ever lose a game along the way to those gold medals. Uh, the U.S. had 
a very poor reputation in women's basketball internationally at that time. We'd finished in eighth place in the world championships, uh, which was the quali main qualifying tournament for the Olympics. And so it was not even thought that we'd qualify, period. There was a last minute qualifying tournament in Hamilton, Ontario, just two weeks before the Olympics to determine the last two teams in the field. And we happened to get one of those two last spots. But USA Basketball was so sure that we wouldn't get one of those that they had made no travel arrangements to get the team from Hamilton to Montreal. Uh, there was no budget for them to live or to stay and eat and practice. So all they had done was bought tickets back home <laughs> uh, for the players after that tournament. And so they had to scrounge around for money and a credit card just to survive between that qualifying tournament and the Olympics. We won the silver medal, which was considered a great upset. Everybody was happy about it. Um, Soviets were dominant then. They had a seven foot two center who was unstoppable. And uh, the way the tournament was played, there wasn't a, a gold medal game that we lost to settle for the silver. It was just a round robin. Whoever had the best record won gold, whoever had the second best won silver. So we knew going into our final game that if we won, uh, we would win the silver medal. And that's what happened. That's awesome. I love that. And it's not, <clears throat> I, I love stories like that as opposed to, you know, they had a different uniform for every single game and they flew in in their private jet. All oh, right. <laughs> well, here's the other thing about that, you know, so now the basketball teams typically stay like on a yacht, right? The men's and women's teams, the women's basketball team in 1976 played, stayed in one two bedroom apartment, the entire team and coaches and trainer. <laughs> they had one bathroom, they had bunk beds stacked everywhere uh, in, in one apartment in the Olympic village. Well, and we remember during the uh, the basketball championships at CAA, they had they showed pictures of the men's workout facility, mm -hmm. and then they had like two little, you know, five. I mean, like they were going to do jazzercise. Right, know? right. <laughs> it, uh, it, but again, not much has changed. <laughs> no, I know, and and sometimes people will say like, oh. Um, it was pure back then or something. They were just playing for the love of the game, you know, which I, I dispute because they deserved a lot more than they got. And I think that players today love the game too. Um, and so uh, it's sort of a fallacy of the, like this golden past. What's your, what's your quick take on what's happening with FIFA and Qatar then right now too, with the world cup going on and the history of human rights violations, deaths and, and anti gay stance. Yeah, well, I do think it's uh, an important part of the whole story of that tournament. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm hypocritical in some ways in, in terms of being able to compartmentalize the sports itself from the bigger issues, yep. uh, you yep. know, especially with football. Like, I'm not letting my son play football, but I cheer on the Vanderbilt team and the Green Bay Packers every weekend. You know, um, I'm sure that I'll watch the World Cup and enjoy the games. Um, but I do think it's important that all these other issues are, are addressed. I saw that Fox was came out and said they weren't going to talk about it, right? As as they broadcast the World Cup. Um, you know, I certainly think that's the wrong approach. I saw some cool clips from the BBC just yesterday about how they were uh, dealing with it in their like studio shows. Um, I do think it's, uh, you know, some people are, there's this uh, dispute about like what aboutism, you know, and like how yeah. can you criticize Qatar when other countries uh, have human rights violations too? I don't think that means you don't talk about it. I think that means you look for more opportunities to talk about it uh, where you see it happening. Talking about these things more is is what we're trying to do for sure because it's it doesn't do anyone any good 
to just shut everything down and pretend it's not going on. Yeah, no doubt. Um, what was the story today? I saw about the armbands, you know, for uh, LGBT rights that teams were going to wear and now they're not wearing them over concern they could get a yellow card or something in the game. Um, I don't know. You wish yeah. that, that there would be more uh, courage uh, to stand up for, for these uh, basic human rights. Well, I think the, what you're saying is kind of what you touched on earlier is that it's a lot of the athletes themselves and the teams. It's not the organizers or the, uh, the, the local governments and, and other FIFA, in this case, the other NGO leaders that are trying to make any changes. They're, right. you know, they're, they're worried about entertaining and the spectacle and marketing dollars probably more so than, you know, the exactly. other things. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Where you do see the athletes willing, willing to try to use their platform. I think that's, one of the biggest differences when you look across these eras that I've written about, you know, Perry Wallace in the 1960s as the only black player in the SEC hardly had a platform at all, you know, he, but he did try to use it. He gave an interview to the local paper the day after his last game, talk about the racism that he had encountered. The women in 1976 were hardly covered, you know, as women's basketball players. And so they didn't have the ability that, you know, say a WNBA player does today to speak out on social issues and actually be heard. Um, even going the, back to 1936, though, you really did see athletes using what platform they had. So I write it in the book about the um, team at Long Island University, which had the best college basketball team in the country. The way that the U.S. team was formed in 36 was to play sort of a March Madness style tournament where the best amateur teams in the country, whether they were YMCA teams or AAU teams or college teams, were invited to play in this tournament and whichever two teams made it to the championship would represent the United States in the 36 Olympics. They'd basically combine their rosters to create the team. Well, LIU would have been favored to be one of those two teams. They were the best college team in the country. They took a vote as a team to boycott even the qualifying tournament to protest Hitler. And so, you know, this is uh, 1934, 35 that they're thinking about this. And oftentimes we ask, well, how much did people in this country really know about the Nazi regime like in those early years? Well, college basketball players knew enough that they decided to boycott tournament um, using that platform. Another way of thinking about the platform, in 76, 40 years later, uh, Coach Billy Moore sat her team down in the locker room before the silver medal game and told her players that if they won the game, it was going to change women's basketball in this country for the next 25 years. You know, so here's someone that was aware of the history they were making as they made it. You know, and a lot of times, again, you wondered, it wasn't, was it decades later that you realized that, you know, you changed things? Well, they, they realized at the time. And she had seen what happened with gymnastics after the 72 Olympics when Olga Corbett was the big star. And she said little girls all over the world started doing gymnastics after that. She thought that with uh, the visibility of basketball in 76, that young girls would start to play basketball. And also with Title IX coming in and schools adding varsity teams and colleges adding scholarships. And that's exactly what happened. The rates of uh, participation in basketball skyrocketed in um, the 70s and 80s. And those are the women who became the Olympians, you know, in the 90s, you know, that we watch documentaries about now. Um, so uh, just to talk about the the... the the platform and the opportunity that athletes have to create change or to raise awareness of issues. Certainly it's bigger than ever now, but you even see it going back to the seventies or back to the sixties or the thirties. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you're, you're a couple of years older than me too, but 
in our lifetime, you know, most of us would say growing up, right? Like Hitler, Nazis, bad, you know, but we're seeing a little bit more emergence of anti-Semitism and, you know, Holocaust denials and those sorts of things. And we mm -hmm. probably still haven't made it, you know, as much progress on, you know, black and, and certainly and women's uh, rights, girls and women's participation, LGBT plus uh, the, the different identities and the way that we've made progress and haven't made progress is kind of interesting in, in the different areas versus kind of equality and opportunity for really all. Yeah. You know, that's been like a, a maturing process for me of, as understanding that everything doesn't just always get better, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, that because there has been progress, that doesn't mean it's going to continue to look around and see that it's your own neighbors that are fighting these things that you think are, uh, you know, for the benefit of humanity, but they're fighting against it. It's like, what are, what are we doing? You know? Um, but uh, of course that's been true. Like every, like I said, every generation has to fight these same battles. Um, and I think when we were growing up, like say in the eighties, early nineties, it just seemed like it was what you were fighting against maybe was apathy, right. Or yeah. if you think about it as athletes, not really saying that much. Right. Or, um, that's the era. That's the era of Michael Jordan and others that were that we we criticized as not being advocates or activists at all. Yes, yes. And so you saw that with athletes, but you also saw just with everyday people, like okay, the civil rights movement that's passed. Yeah, we, we did that, you know, yeah. or weren't really talking too much about LGBT rights in the in the high school of that early '90s, late '80s, you know. Um, but now it seems like uh, it's not just it's not apathy. It's like people who are outright anti-Semitic, you know, yeah, outright yeah. racist, outright uh, homophobic going and shooting up a club like we saw yesterday, you know. Um, and so uh, not that apathy isn't dangerous, but it seems especially dangerous now that you, you began this question like, is no doubt Hitler bad, right? <laughs> not everybody believes that right now. It yeah. seems like in our own country. And so, uh, you know, we're up against something pretty, pretty momentous. Andrew, why don't you just shut up and dribble? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I hear you. I mean, I, I get that sometimes. Um, sports are inseparable from politics. So baseball, my favorite sport. I mean, it was certainly political up until the time of Jackie Robinson's rookie year that there was no black player <laughs> in the major leagues, right? Whether uh, you could say that was the time before politics in baseball, you know, um, even not saying something about an issue is a political decision uh, to make. And so you can't do it. Um, the closest I've done is our football stadium here at Vanderbilt just turned 100, right? So I did a coffee table book celebrating the 100th anniversary of this football stadium and of the football program. But even there, where it's sort of considered like a benign book of pictures and anecdotes about the program, you know, I found the first Native American football player uh, at Vanderbilt in the 1890s, you know, and so his pictures in the book, we have a picture of the cheerleaders taking a knee a couple of years ago. I mean, that's an important history that happened in the stadium. There was um, a transgender student that was a homecoming queen the last year they had that homecoming queen uh, at Vanderbilt. You know, that picture, that's an important part of the history of this football program, too. We had Sarah Fuller, who kicked a ex two extra points against Tennessee a couple of years yeah. ago, the first woman to score points in a power five football game. Uh, the first half of the book from the 1800s until the late 60s, every football 
football player is white, yeah. you know, uh, and that was a <laughs> intentional decision by this university and, and the conference. So um, and the even coaches. a coffee table book about a stadium, you know, there, there's politics in it, whether you want it or not. Was James Franklin the first African-American football coach? At Vandy, he was. At yeah. Vandy, yeah, head coach, yeah. Um, and Vanderbilt has a pretty good, you know, the, going back to Perry Wallace being the first black player as a basketball player, but uh, James Franklin followed by Derek Mason. So two consecutive uh, black football coaches here. We've had three straight black athletic directors from David Williams to Malcolm Turner to uh, Candace Lee, who's my boss now. She's the first woman athletic director in the SEC and also the first black woman, first black golfer in the SEC. And Nakia Davis uh, was a student here. So uh, Perry started something that's still part of the culture of this place. Well, what advice do you have for the next generation of writers? of writers uh is to do it <laughs> you know uh sometimes writing can feel intimidating um sitting down the uh like for me to write my first book i was like there's no way i'm gonna do this uh criticism i would get from my teachers growing up was that my papers weren't long enough you know so there i felt like there was no way i'm gonna be able to write something that's long enough to be a book um and so i just broke it down uh into the simplest pieces and said i'm gonna write chapter one you know and then i'm gonna write chapter two and then if i just have the discipline not to quit. And I suppose this is sort of like being an athlete or a coach of a certain level of uh, discipline and commitment and um, time spending on your craft. You know, I felt like if I just don't quit, like I will finish this book. And my first book took me eight years. So uh, I'm sure it felt like to some people that I had quit, uh, but you know, I've gotten better at it. Now they take about a year to a year and a half. Um, but for young readers uh, or like young writers, reading is also really important. Um, I know just looking at statistics that people don't read the way they used to. I don't even. A phone is such a tough thing to overcome and attention spans are shrinking. But to become a good writer, you need to, to read a lot and expose yourself to different types of writing and then to find something you're really interested in. You know, I'm so happy that my professor, going back to the beginning of this interview, you know, like said it was OK to write about sports in college um and you know not everybody's interested in sports but find what you're interested in and if you're going to spend the time writing a book you really have to be passionate about the subject and so sports and history and these social issues is what matters to me and so i feel pretty lucky to have a chance to to be published in that area yeah i mean it's worth knowing i mean your your rate of publication is much is increased past the eight-year timeline for the first one yeah, no doubt. Uh, like I say, they're about a year to a year and a half now. What what happened with the first one is, well, first of all, I'd never done it before. Uh, second, um, I got married and had two kids in the middle of those eight years. And then I also didn't have a contract. So for better or worse, I didn't have a deadline. You know, and I, I think you could extend something forever when you don't have a deadline. And the, the benefit of it was I just got to know Perry so much better you know, over the course of eight years. And that was vital to the book is going deeper and deeper and deeper with that uh, subject. So I spent four years research and four years writing. Any, any final kind of, I guess, you know, snippets or aspects that you really want to emphasize or share to? You know, I guess we've covered so much, but uh, just the idea that like, who are these books for? Um, I really want them to appeal to uh teens, you know, who are, who love sports, whether you love reading or not, I think these are very accessible books. But on the other hand, I think they're the types of books, there's a lot of adults who read uh, young adult fiction, for example, you know, think about Harry Potter, right, or 
some of the historical fiction that's out there. It's just as popular with adults as it is with teens. And that's what I've wanted to try to do with these books <clears throat> also is I'm sure if you've read them, like you don't feel like I've like you're reading way below your level or it's dumbed down or something. They're just supposed to be a little bit quicker of a read uh, mm -hmm. to keep everybody's attention, which is in short supply these days. Um, the other thing is I'm looking for another subject. If any of your listeners have any uh, ideas of a sort of a hidden figure in sports that overcame some social obstacles, uh, I've got my eyes out right now. That yeah. was next question is what what the next book was on. Now we got to help him come up with something. Yeah, well, I do have a couple of projects underway. So um, I don't have my next like real big uh, meaty book, but I'm starting a series for even younger kids. Uh, let's say like first, second graders who are just starting to read chapter books on their own called Bigger Than Sports. And it's going to be about athletes who have done something uh, to help other people off the field or off the court. So the first book is about Maya Moore. Uh, great uh, women's basketball player, WNBA star who quit the WNBA at the height of her career to help get a man out of prison. Um, yep, yep. So that's the first book. And then the second book is about uh, LeBron James and the school that he uh, opened in Akron. I've got a uh, contract to do at least four of those books. So again, I'm looking for the next two subjects after that one. Uh, gee, I can't believe you don't have five five ideas just waiting to come out. I, I want to, I feel bad. I need to go back and write some more. Right <laughs> oh, no, you this guy's this guy writing, writing, you know, Meg, Meg keep wants me to do more work for, for her and for, for these right. podcasts here. I gotta, I gotta get back to writing. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, we're going to make sure that everyone can get access to your books very quickly and uh, get their copy right away. But uh, we appreciate the the time you've spent with us and hope you'll come back and, and join us next book. Yeah, thank you, Meg. Thank you, Dr. G. This was really fun. I appreciate you all finding me and the opportunity to tell these stories. Um, and I think it's great uh, the platform you all have started and what you're doing. So thank you for letting me be a part of it. Thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit the follow button because there's more sport knowledge on the way. If you're interested in more information or want to engage in further conversation about these and other issues in sport, visit our website at spknmedia.com. To stay updated on all things SPKN, follow us on social media at spknmedia or email us at team at spknmedia.com, and we'll be happy to welcome you to the SPKN community.